Good morning and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders Podcast. My name is David Flatt and I'll be teaching class this morning. We'll be continuing in our Galatians series, starting in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, and on into chapter 4, verse 7. We'll start class this morning with a review of chapters 1 through 3 in Galatians. I hope that you find this podcast encouraging and a blessing to you, and I appreciate so much you joining us. We'll start class in just a few moments. Um, but let's get started with a prayer. Any of you guys that were in first service this morning, um, Chris talked about the importance and power of prayer, and it's really convicting. So why don't we just pray and ask the Spirit to be with us the next 35, 40 minutes, and let's see what God wants to do with this text. Father, we are just so humbled uh, to be your children. And God, um, I've just been overwhelmed uh, by this text this week as I've been studying it, and just so thankful uh, to be uh, one of your children, to be adopted into your family. God, I just pray that the truths in Galatians um, 1 through 4 this morning can just come alive and that you'll help me and my opinions and my biases to get out of the way and just be used as a vessel to communicate the truth and beauty of your gospel uh, told through your word. God, we thank you so much for the people in this room and just the love uh, that is shared here, the mutual commitment to your gospel. and. <coughs> to your ways. And God, we just pray that we could live sacrificially for the things that matter most. Thank you so much for all you've given us, especially your son. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, it is great to be here this morning. I have missed being here. I apologize for being gone so much. I've had a lot going on, uh, but I'm back and I hopefully uh, won't have to be traveling so much and can be here on Sundays. I appreciate Kyle doing the podcast because I got to hear Scott's awesome lesson last week and, and Eric's lesson and Winston's lesson walking through Galatians. I think it's been really cool. Galatians is a great book. Um, if you kind of want to learn basic Christianity, I mean, there's a lot of places you can go. Really the core kind of teachings of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian, a lot of it is right here, including kind of some controversial issues. So um, what I want to do is really be committed to the text and walk through uh, what is actually said here in the text and see what we can draw from it. So we're going through uh, uh, this series on Galatians and uh, today will be verses chapter 3 verses 26 through 47 and um, through 4 verse 7. But I want to start with a brief review of Galatians 1 through 3, because what happens in the first three chapters of Galatians really sets up this kind of short text that we have this morning. So, I think about the first three chapters of Galatians. I think there's like a central theme in each chapter, and I think each of these themes kind of makes clear what the gospel is. Paul's trying to make a point here, um, like he so often is. So, let's think about. Galatians chapter 1, the gospel concept, the key idea in Galatians chapter 1 is the idea of grace. Okay, uh, Chapter 2, the key concept is this idea of faith. In chapter 3, the key concept is this idea of what it means to be in Christ. In Christ. So maybe some people flash some hands for me that are willing to read here, but I just want to go through these one by one. So who can read Galatians 1, chapter 1, verse 16? All right. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. All right, so this is really the kind of the, the context of Galatians. So Paul is writing to the church at Galatia. Church of Galatia is a mixed church in terms of 
there's a lot of Jewish Christians there, and there's also a lot of Gentile Christians. Kind of to do with culturally what was happening in Galatia at the time. Uh, the Jews were actually kicked out of the church based on like some political turmoil. They were made to leave the city. Then the Jews were allowed to come back. And so the church in Galatia is struggling with reintegrating Jewish Christians into a church that has really become a Gentile church. Okay, so now you've got a church that was formerly you know, Christianity started with really Jewish Christians, then converted a bunch of Gentiles, so now they had a, a Jewish and Gentile mixed congregation. Then the Jews were oppressed, forced to leave the city based on some political turmoil. Now they've come back, we're trying to reintegrate. So the key tension here is that the Jewish Christians who, because, you know, kind of grew up in uh, religion and understood the law of Moses and the Old Testament laws, they're really committed to the Old Testament rituals, including, most importantly to them, the idea of circumcision, right? So the Jewish Christians come back, become leaders in the church again, and what do they say to the Gentile Christians? You guys got to be circumcised. If you want to be the people of God, you have to take on the physical outward sign of the people of God. You all need to be circumcised. So you can imagine this created like some tension in the church, right? So you're going to tell you know, a bunch of people who are not circumcised, who are adult men, you've got to be circumcised, right? So this is a little, you know, maybe not totally like a, a comfortable or easy conversation, but it's what's going on. That's a, that's a tension Paul's addressing here. And so Paul is actually angry. He writes to the church in Galatia and saying, I cannot believe that you are already leaving the gospel of grace. So remember, the gospel that Paul preaches, the gospel that Jesus died for is that you are saved based on nothing that you do, but based on Christ's work in you. So this idea that we would preach that in order to be saved, you must complete the ritual of circumcision, that is, that is antithetical to the gospel. And so Paul, in chapter 1, Paul's really leading with a message that the gospel is by grace. So a way that you could kind of summarize this concept that I really like. Chapter 1, you would say, God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for Him. So the gospel is free. The gospel is free. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do that's going to make God love you less. There's nothing you could ever do that's going to earn His favor, His pleasure in you. God is pleased and finds pleasure in you based on who you are, not based on anything you've done. Okay, so that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, key concept is faith. Can somebody read Galatians 2 verse 16 for us? All right. Thank you. So key concept in Galatians chapter 2 is this idea of faith. So we could summarize this by saying God's pleasure in us is based on Christ's performance for us and in us. So chapter 1, the idea of grace, getting what we don't deserve, right? That's grace, getting something you don't deserve. Chapter 2, so if, if God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance. What is God's pleasure in us based on? It's based on Christ's performance in us. So Paul almost couldn't be more explicit. He says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. So what you do does not earn your right standing before God, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we earn right standing before God? By faith. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that way, that way, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So you, 
God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance in Him. God's pleasure in you is based on your faith in Christ and His performance through you. Right? So that's chapter 2. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Key concept in Galatians chapter 3 is this idea of being in Christ. Galatians 3.14 is a famous verse. Can somebody read this for us? Uh, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Alright, so the idea here is that we're redeemed through the blessing of Abraham as Gentiles and Jews through Christ. So our redemption is through Christ. Alright, so this could really, I mean this is really the gospel. This is everything. First three chapters of, of um, Galatians. You may have heard this sentence before, um, really kind of a from the uh, Reformation, kind of um, Protestant Christianity, evangelicalism. This is a, a famous sentence. It's kind of drawn out of these three concepts. But you would say, salvation is by grace. This is chapter 1 of Galatians, right? Through faith. This is chapter 2. In Christ. So those are the three key concepts, first three chapters of Galatians. That's it. So this sentence is the first three chapters of Galatians. This sentence, this idea, is what started the Protestant Reformation. So Martin Luther is Catholic um, bishop studying the, studying the Greek New Testament, reads Galatians, especially the first three chapters of Galatians. And, um, you know, I, I love a lot of our Catholic brothers. I think they're doing a lot of great things. But I think Luther was right on some points here. There is a salvation here that's not based on works, but it's based um, on the idea of by grace, through faith, in Christ. So that is what salvation comes from. And this is all these concepts that really changed the Christian world arose by returning to what Paul was saying in the first century in Galatians 1-3. through 3. So this, this concept could maybe, the, the big theological term we would call this is the idea of justification. So this key theological concept, Galatians 1-3, through 3, the idea of justification. You are justified in the sight of of God. And so that's really what I want to turn to next is this idea of justification and then another theological concept that Paul builds off of after um, this is Galatians 1 1 verses 325 is really this idea. The idea of justification and the idea that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Then Paul turns to another idea in 326 building off of justification. So justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous based on faith in Christ. Okay, so let's look at justification and adoption and how those interact, okay? So justification is a legal term, okay? So the, uh, the Greek word is brought from like a, a courtroom. So the idea here is visualizing God as the judge standing before you as a defendant and declaring you right. So you're declared righteous in the eyes of God, okay? So how can that happen? Well, what happens is that we are attributed Christ's righteousness in us through faith. So we're declared righteous not based on anything that we do, but based on what 
Christ has done through us. So we're justified. So justification is the fundamental principle, the theological doctrine on which Christianity is based. There is no Christianity without the idea of justification. So what is adoption? Well, I would say justification is the fundamental basis, the foundation of Christianity, but adoption is really a, a higher concept, right? So in justification, the judge declares us innocent, declares us free, says that we will not receive the penalty that we're due. But in adoption, the judge adopts us as his children, right? So the, the picture here is a judge standing before us as a guilty defendant, right, and in, in giving us Christ's righteousness, declaring us not guilty. But then the judge gets off the bench, comes down and says, I'm going to take you, a guilty sinner, to be my child, right? And that's the turn that Paul makes here. So chapter 1 through chapter 3, Paul's talking about this idea of justification, the foundational, fundamental principle of Christianity. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ. But Christianity doesn't stop there. Christianity goes on to build a greater concept that we're actually adopted as children, as God's children. So that's kind of, I've kind of given the game away there. That's kind of the, the punchline of the, the joke of the lesson. But what I want to do is kind of backtrack and see how does Paul make this argument that not only are we justified, declared righteous in God's sight, but we're adopted. We're God's children. So to do that, why don't we go to the text? I think the best place to go when you got a question, you want to uh, build off something is to go to the text itself. So let's go to Galatians 3, chapter, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. I right, would love to have a reader here if somebody wants to read this for us. All right, thank you, Mr. Dave. I want to make three points here about this text. The first point is this idea of sons. What does it mean to be a son of God, and why does Paul use that word? So um, let's just say we're 3, 26 through 29, and I'll make three points. The first is this idea of sons. The second thing I want to talk about is baptism. Paul mentions this, I think uh, in their context, kind of a weird idea. Why are we talking about baptism right here? I think there's some, some important things to talk about there. And then third, I want to talk about what it means to be an heir. And what point is Paul making there? So, this idea of sons. So there's a tendency here, I think, by well-meaning people, people I love and respect, to say, um, well, Paul used the word sons there, but that's offensive because Paul's not including women. So why would he use the word son there? And again, I think well-meaning people would say, well, why don't we change this language and just say, say children, right, or sons and daughters. Some of your, te some of your texts may have interpreted it that way. And uh, in some ways, I appreciate that, right? We want to use language that shows that God loves everyone. But the, the problem, at least in, in this specific instance, is when we do that, we miss Paul's point. So Paul used the word here, huoi. H-U-I-O-I is a Greek word Paul uses here. This is a legal term that indicates a son due to receive an inheritance. This is why Bible study is so important. We can't 
pull the text out of its cultural context and just apply it to our day and the cultural problems of our day without interpreting what was really meant by the text in the first place. So what Paul's meaning to say here, in, in addition to not being misogynistic or chauvinistic against women is actually pretty countercultural. What Paul's saying here is that all of us who are in Christ are huoi. We all will receive the inheritance of God. We are all sons. So if we say, if, if Paul said all sons and daughters, that wasn't the point he was trying to make. The point Paul's trying to make here is that all of us in Christ will receive the inheritance as sons of God. That makes sense. So here, Paul's talking about a much bigger blessing than just being um, maybe a f- familial association. He's talking about the blessing of an inheritance, of receiving the blessings of sonship. So Paul used the Greek word for son as opposed to children intentionally here. In first century culture, whether Jewish, Roman, or Greek, the son as opposed to the daughter would receive the inheritance. Thankfully, we don't do that anymore, right? Obviously, that's incredibly inappropriate. But in Paul's culture, that was what was happening. And so Paul's saying, whether you are um, Greek or Jewish, male or female, slave or master, you will receive the sonship. So Paul's not trying to make a point here about cultural associations or distinctions in marriage or in the church or lots of things that we can kind of get into. The point of this text is that old distinctions of inferiority and superiority are abolished at the cross. So we all receive the inheritance as children of God. We are all sons, and in our context, daughters of God. So I think it's appropriate to say we're sons and daughters of God. There's nothing wrong with that phrase. We under, because we understand to be a son or a daughter means that you stand to receive the inheritance and the blessing. So that's what I want to say about sons of God. The next I want to talk about is baptism. So this is weird, right? We're talking about this Jewish context, this Jewish and Gentile church has come together. There's this tension about circumcision. And then Paul brings up this idea of baptism. So let's look at verse 27 here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here's a quote I think is uh, appropriate from one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright. And I'll just read it and then we'll make some, some comments about this. So what matters for Paul is that someone is in the Messiah or belongs to the Messiah. This is not simply a spiritual state resulting from or consisting in a certain type of inner experience. For Paul is a matter of belonging to a particular community, the new royal family, the Messiah's people. And this family is entered through baptism. Baptism is therefore into the Messiah. It is a doorway through which one passes into membership in the single family God promised Abraham. So, it's a mouthful. Let's kind of go back to the text and unpack it. For in Christ you are all sons of God. So we're all going to receive the inheritance as God's children. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what Paul is concerned with here is how do you come into Christ? How do you become part of the family of Christ? So what was the tension in the church in Galatia? This idea of circumcision, right? This outward sign of being a part of the people of God, the idea of circumcision. Paul's saying the outward sign, outward shadows, what you look like on the outside is not what makes you the people of God. The sign of the new covenant is not circumcision, it's baptism. So you come into the covenant, you become part of the people of God through baptism. So how do you uh, become into Christ? How do you put on Christ? You put on Christ through baptism. So the New Testament has a high view of baptism, a really high view of baptism. So 
not because of um, whether you go to church or how you were brought up or what your parents taught you or uh, where you live or what your preacher taught or your youth minister taught growing up, but because God teaches us through the Bible, I think we also ought to have a high view of baptism. Okay, Baptism is an important part of the Christian life. In fact, the New Testament has, talks a lot about baptism. So Acts um, 22, verse 16, we receive forgiveness of sins through baptism. We're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. We find union with Christ's death and resurrection, Romans 6, Colossians 2. And then we're clothed with, with Christ. That's the language we're just talking about, Romans th- uh, Galatians 3. So as part of justification, we now have the higher concept of adoption. In adoption, we're given the gift of Son, and then we put on Christ in baptism. I'm just going to add here a little board. We're going to put on Christ. All right. So the third thing I want to talk about in this text is this idea of being an heir. Okay. So we're heirs to Abraham's promise. So this is really neat because I think any time in the text we can show how the New Testament teaching connects to the Old Testament teaching and how God is setting forth a plan that started at the very beginning to redeem a people for himself. I think that's special. Okay, and so that's what's going on here in Galatians 3. So let's look at verse 29, and then I'll make a couple of points about it. So verse 29, And if you are in, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so... Let's, does anybody remember like Father Abraham? You know, we got the, we got the song Father Abraham and Many Sons. We're not going to sing it this morning, but I think it's important. Like this idea of Father Abraham is important. So think back to Genesis 12. Okay, I'm, I'm actually going to turn there, and I just want I'm going to read a verse to us this morning to, to make the point. So, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on the New Testament, I think appropriately, but I don't think it's appropriate to miss the story that God is shaping throughout generations. So. There's this guy back in Genesis named Abram, okay? And we kind of view uh, these, you know, Old Testament figures like heroes, like they're, you know, these super Christian, super people of God. Abram really wasn't, okay? Abram was this, like, pagan guy trying to um, run away with his son-in-law and kind of their two families. Their servants were getting in fights. There's nothing especially spiritual about him. For whatever reason, God calls Abram to something special. So that's what, that's what Genesis, happens in Genesis 12. God picks this man to bless the whole world through. So I'm just going to read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in the seed of Abraham, all the families of the world will be blessed. So God starts this plan with this pagan guy underneath the stars one night, tells Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and we're going to bless every nation of the world through you. Here in Galatians 3, Paul is explaining how Christ fulfills that promise to Abraham. So let's just kind of go step by step through this. So God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, to bless all the people of the earth through Abraham. Secondly, 
God promised to give Abraham's offspring or seed the single blessing of the new covenant. So Paul is really a technical here. He, uh, uh, he kind of like writes like a lawyer sometimes. It's almost like, man, like kind of cool off. He doesn't write like a devotional book like maybe some of our favorite authors do. But look here, and this is uh, Galatians 3, verse 16, what Scott taught about last week. So the, the promises were spoken to Abraham. He's referring back to Genesis 12. I'm going to bless all nations and to his seed. So Paul makes the point here that seed is a singular noun and not a plural noun, right? So like, think about like how technical the point he's making. Paul is saying that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy to Abraham because Abraham was promised that through his seed, singular seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. So it's not the people of Abraham. It's a single seed coming from the descendants of Abraham. Meaning, and so he says, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So that's Paul's point, is that through Abraham, one seed would come that would bless all people. That person is Christ. So how does that happen? The point here is that the offspring or seed that will receive the blessing that God promised Abraham is Christ. Through our union in Christ, going back to our text this morning, Galatians 3, 26 through 29, we are also Abraham's offspring. Right? So how do we become part of God's people? How do we become Abraham's descendants? Through our union with Christ. And our heritage goes back to this pagan man standing underneath the stars who God promised he would make his descendants as wide as the stars and bless all people of the earth through him. So we are connected through Abraham into the people of God through Jesus Christ. All right, so that brings us to maybe the, the peak text here uh, that we're teaching about this morning. So this is Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. So just to review, the first three chapters of Galatians are about the doctrine of justification. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Paul makes a point at the very end of chapter 3 that we're sons of God, we're due the inheritance of God as full children, full heirs of his promise, the promise that he made to Abraham. Right? So God promised Abraham an inheritance of blessings to all people of the earth, as God's rightful children, we will receive that promise through putting on Christ in baptism. Okay, so that's what's happened right up to the end. Uh, that's the first three chapters of Galatians. Now we're in Galatians 4. Can somebody read this for us? Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Okay. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. <clears throat> so Paul's a master of analogies here. And he starts out with one that we may not totally get, again, because we live in 2017 America. Paul's writing to a first century Jewish and Gentile culture. But there's this idea here that if you're an heir, until you come of age, you're treated not as an heir, but <coughs> as, as a slave, as just a, a normal member of the house, even though you're due the inheritance. So look at verse 1 through 3 here that Kyle just read. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So Paul here is picturing 
a first-century household where the, the firstborn son who will receive the inheritance is not treated special or any different or has not received any part of the inheritance because he is still a child. But he is under the guardians and manners until the date set by the father. So until the father determines that the son has come of age, he's not due the inheritance or the blessings of sonship. In the same way, we also, when we were children, speaking about spiritual children, I think we all know what it means to be a spiritual child. I still feel that way sometimes. Don't understand the deep things, aren't living in an abundant, rich relationship with Christ. But while we are children, we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So elementary principles, what's Paul talking about here? I think he's talking about two things. One would be the elementary principles of legalism. So remember, he's writing to the church in Galatia. This is a church made up of Gentile and Jewish Christians, right? So the elementary principles to the Jewish Christians would be this idea of legalism, that, your pleasure, that God's pleasure in you is based on your performance in Him. So the elementary principle would say, you work harder, you read your Bible more, you do a better job of serving the poor, you do a better job of not saying curse words, you make sure you don't go to the wrong movies. If you do these checklists of things, then God will take greater pleasure in you and will save you. Right? That's an elementary principle that's not Christianity. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance in Him. The other elementary principle is, is paganism, right? So there's Gentile Christians in the church who came out of paganism. So Paul's saying when you're stuck in the elementary principles of paganism, of false teaching in your, in your past that you used to believe, then you're not due the gifts and blessings of sonship. You're still treated as a slave. And I think that the other point he makes here that is really special. In verse 3, he uses this word enslaved. So enslaved here is a, is a technical term that refers to a demonic or spiritual aspect of captivity, right? So what Paul is saying here, of course the elementary principles of the world are propagated by, by false teachers and humans, right? We got churches today that are, are, are preaching legalism this morning. We certainly, I think, we have postmodern cultural paganism is the dominant view of, of our culture, of our news media, of Hollywood. That's how most people in America think. That's certainly propagated by human and human thought. But there's something beyond just physical to this. There's a spiritual dimension to the elementary principles. Just to, put, to be more blunt, Satan is using false teaching about legalism and paganism to ensnare and enslave us as children to prevent us from receiving the blessings of full childhood of God. Okay, so I think Paul's making a really important point here that the great blessing you have fundamentally justification, to be declared right before God. But the highest blessing of sonship, to be a child of God, to be in relationship with God, we are held back from that because Satan is using these elementary principles of the world. Which brings us to the, the highest calling here, the end of our text this morning, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right, so just, just kind of going through piece by piece, when the fullness of time had come. So a lot of commentators had a lot of interesting things to say about this. I'm not sure I buy all of it, but I think some of it's interesting. You think about when Jesus came. This time theologically is really interesting. So there's a lot of these Old Testament prophecies talking about Jesus rebuilding the temple and what is going on um, religiously at the time. Well, second 
um, second temple Israel existed at the time Jesus was born. It seems like theologically God picked that time for Jesus to come. Also, religiously, there was a spiritual hunger. There was kind of a time of Jewish awakening when Jesus came. People were interested in spiritual questions. If you think about culturally, it was an interesting time that God chose to send Jesus. It was a cultural moment when most of the advanced and educated world was speaking the same language. So Christianity could spread a lot better because everybody was speaking Greek. And then fourth, I would say, politically, you had the Pax Romana, right? So this weird time about a 50 to 150 year period in ancient history where there was no wars, right? So I think God, um, Jesus was sent in the fullness of time. It was a, a good time for God to have planned in his sovereign design to send Jesus into the world. Now let's look at who he sent. God sent his son. So this is tough because there's some kind of mystery here. But I think we can't neglect who Jesus was. And Paul here, I think Paul's being explicit. He's trying to make a point here that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is divine, right? So, so who did God send to, to give us the opportunity to receive the inheritance into Abraham's family and to have full sonship? He sent Jesus Christ, who's fully man and fully divine. And he makes this point by saying, that God sent his son who was born of a woman. So that's the point he's making. His son, he's divine, he's born of a woman, born of Mary, so he's human. But he came under the law. So God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So let's just kind of take, take a step back or maybe getting a little too technical here and just want to make the, the big picture. So Jesus Christ came to live the life that we couldn't live. So he lived under the law as a human, as a man, underneath the Jewish law, he was expected to keep the Jewish law in order to be seen as righteous in God's sight. No one has ever done that, right? So Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. But Jesus did. So Jesus alone, because of his divinity, because of his power, was able to live a life that we couldn't live so he could die the death that we deserve to die. So he took on the wrath of God because he lived a life that we couldn't live died the death that we deserve to die. So because of him, we're attributed, we can be attributed his righteousness and be sons of God. So that we might be adopted of sons. So the picture of Christianity that we talked about is not of God the judge, is not only of God the judge declaring you righteous, but it's also of God the Father stepping off the bench and adopting you as his son. Alright, so I want to finish um, with one final point here and then we'll be done. So let's look at Galatians 4, verse 6. Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I want us to take just a second here to think about the children that are represented in this room. Not everybody here is a parent. Not everybody in here, uh, there's no special status before God you get as being a parent. Um, I think there's some nights where it may be, man, being a parent is kind of tough. These uh, people without kids, they may be on to something. But being a parent is a blessing and, and I think a really important uh, part of a, a lot of our lives. So I just want us to think about our children, whether um, children through natural birth or children through the blessing of adoption. There's a lot of children represented in this family. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Why is your child your son or daughter? What event or what moment happened that made your child yours. And so I think for most of us, we're going to look back at 
the time we signed the adoption papers and made it official or the time in a hospital room right here. So this is me holding Crawford for the, for the first time. That was a moment that he'll forever be my son. There's nothing that he can do that will make Crawford not my son ever again. That was the moment when he was declared my son. So that's, 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 just, that's a picture of justification. Crawford's status as my child is based on what happened in the past and in a single moment. But his experience as my child is based on what's happening today. That's this concept of adoption. So, so why does Crawford, why does he experience sonship with me? Because we have a relationship, right? We do things together. We spend time together. And so that's the picture of justification, the moment when he became my child, to the picture of adoption, the moments that we live together, he's adopted and we experience life together. In the same way, our status as God's people is based on our entry into relationship with Him through faith and baptism. So why are we God's people? Why are we God's people? Because we entered into relationship with God through faith and through baptism. Right? We are God's people. We are justified. God said, David, I know, all of, I know things about you that no one else but you knows. I know you in your dirtiest, deepest, darkest spots of your heart the greed that you won't even confess to yourself, the immorality that, that you're prone to if, if left to your natural desires. I know you, and I still want you. I still love you. I want you to be mine. That's justification. But beyond that, our experience as children of God is based on the infection and love that is shown us through the Spirit. So I, I want us to be a people that emphasizes justification and baptism. We ought to be people who points back to special moments. But Christianity doesn't stop there. In fact, we're in a continual relationship with, with God as his children. And so think back uh, to the way that this text ends. Um, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. So this idea of Abba, Father. Abba is a Jewish, in Jewish tradition, this was a word that was never used to apply to God. In fact, it was a word that wasn't often spoken outside the home. So I think most of you people can relate. My children say daddy a different way when they're talking to me than maybe they would talk to their friends outside the home. There's a special kind of affection there. I'm not just their father, I'm their daddy, right? And so when Ali says, daddy, will you come play with me? Or, you know, daddy's home. There's a special affection and affinity there. And Jesus is applying this affinity to God the Father. He's saying he is our Abba Father. So one commentary says, as far as can be ascertained from Jewish sources, Jesus was unique in applying this designation to God. So there's a new distinction we have as children of God adopted into God's family. We are God's children. He is our daddy. So J.I. Packer is one of the most famous and I think important theologians of the past 100 years. He's like 90 years old and he's still doing a little writing. He wrote the book Knowing God. Knowing God. If you haven't read that book, I would, I'd encourage you to read it. It'd be maybe one of my 10 books that's really meant the most to me. It's called Knowing God. It's a really, really special book. But in that book, he has this quote, which I think kind of sums up what I wanted to say this morning. What is a Christian? You guys ever ask yourself that question? We talked this morning about we talked this morning about what it means to be a Christian and how we can make Christians, right? how we can make disciples. And um, 
Packer is answering the same question. He says, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? He says, the, the simplest answer or the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. So as we finish this morning, I just want to um, encourage us with, with uh, maybe one final thought, which is that we ought to be people who are serious about the Word. We ought to be people who seek to understand um, intellectually what is Christianity, what do these doctrines mean, what is uh, the truth behind Christianity. But there's something beyond the doctrines which God is calling us to. So God's calling us not just to understand truth about Him, Right? I think I'm guilty of this. I love kind of the, the intellectual life. I may try too hard to try to understand who God is and neglect that the purpose of understanding is for relationship. So why do I want to understand the truth about God? Because I want to be His child. And I want to be in a relationship with Him. I want to feel about Him the same way my three-year-old feels about me, to have that same trust and affinity and love and affection as His Son. And so my prayer is that we will pursue the truth about God more radically, not just for the sake of having truth, but because we want to have the relationship that only that truth can provide. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for this morning. And God, we just pray um, that your truth would penetrate our hearts. God, we recognize that these truths are so rich and so mysterious that we're just incapable of perfectly explaining them. God, we're just so thankful for your spirit in a way that it speaks to our hearts in ways that help us to understand things that we could never say. And God, we are so thankful for the privilege of being your children, of being fully recipient of the gifts of being in relationship with you, not just for this time, but for all time. And God, we look forward to a day when our relationship with you will be perfected and we will worship you with our brothers and sisters forever in your presence. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ who makes that promise possible. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. hope that you'll choose to join us next week or even the week after that as we continue our study in Galatians. We meet every morning at Highland Church of Christ at 10 a.m. Again, thanks for listening and I hope you have a great week.